Wow. I know you're all riveting. You know, you're like, yes, that was the word of the Lord I needed. Um, from Hebrews chapter 7, Melchizedek, my heart was warmed. Um, so I know we have a heavier text in front of us, um, but all of God's word is God-breathed, and it's included in the canon for a purpose inside of God's word. And so we're going to dive into Hebrews 7, and we're going to do so to see the beauty of what God is revealing here in his word. But before we do that, because this is heavier, um, let's pray together. Our Father, we always long for you to guide our conversation. Um, We always long for you to instill within us the truth of your word, um, both the timelessness of your word, but also the timely nature of your Holy Spirit, how he speaks to us, how he guides us in all righteousness, rightness of living, as Jesus Christ has revealed and died on the cross to make possible for those who find their identity in him. So we pray, Lord, you give us ears to hear eyes to see, and hearts to understand uh, what is truly going on in your word this morning. Thank you for your grace. May anything that is ridiculous that comes out of my mouth be easily forgotten, and that which is truth stick like glue. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Well, over the past couple weeks, I think Allie and I have finally gotten to the point where we're not always in survival mode. Which is pretty great. Um, We've had some pockets of normalcy, even though it's a new kind of normalcy, um, as our daughter is learning to sleep. Um, She did not sleep so great last night, but that comes with growth spurts. But every once in a while, we get these beautiful moments of new normalcy. And I've been starting to work out again. Um, I love to work out, and while Allie was pregnant and over these past eight weeks, that's one aspect of my life exercise that has just, just totally jumped off the rails. And I personally, in exercise, I love to run. I don't like it when people watch me run, even though I love to be on the te- treadmill. I know runners hate treadmills, but I love treadmills. But when you have somebody who's like working out and they're kind of like right there watching you while you're running, it's very awkward. Um, I like running because I like the stress it relieves from my mind. Like I, I love working out now from like three to five in the afternoon because all the worries of the things I didn't get done that I probably should have got done, I just run them out, <laughs> you know? Um, also, I love the feeling of running at the end, that you've accomplished something. Um, a lot in pastoral work is not, you know, easy checkoff lists. So at least at the end of the day, I have ran two, three, four, five miles, whatever. I've accomplished something, and my body feels good. But when I'm at the gym, um, there are those who are there to work out because they want healthy lives and they enjoy working out. And then there are those who are working out to be seen working out. Um, They look and and long for those moments, you know, as they're, you know, totally packing on these giant biceps and triceps and deltoids. They're just waiting for someone to look at them and prove themselves as as cool. Um, That's a little trite, but maybe more. They prove themselves to be sexy, as tough, as admirable. And You know, in that situation, in one grand way, we all are trying to prove ourselves. Um, Whatever it might be, we want to hear this ultimate verdict that finally we're valuable, finally we're lovable, finally we're attractive, finally we're worth it. And each one of us deep down has this nagging sense of inadequacy that's constantly pushing us into a giant courtroom And whether you're judged by a jury of your peers or your very own heart, you find your whole life 
is to just try to prove your existence, that you're worth it. One of my favorite sports movies um, is The Old Chariots of Fire. Um, I, it just, it's still one of my favorites of all time. Although it revolves around running, it's really about life, and running is a metaphor of life. And I find, it, I find myself so easily living into the character of Harold M. Abrahams, where he says, before he goes out and runs his race, he says, I will raise my eyes and look down the corridor four feet wide with ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? But will I? Now, for you this morning, it may not be running. You may not be going to the gym, waiting for people to see you do your next 30 or 40 um, curls. Um, But whatever you're wrestling through, I want you to ask yourself this morning, what are you trying to prove? What are you trying to prove with your life? You can't sit here this morning actually and rest. You can't sit here and listen. You can't sit here and try to understand what God is saying because in the back of your mind, you're worried about that project at work. In the back of your mind, you're worried about that test at school. In the back of your mind, you're worried about that mess at home or the relationship that's in shambles because if those don't follow through, you'll be proven to be a failure. You'll be proven to be a fraud. You'll be proven to be unnecessary. Or maybe for you dedicated urbanites, I find myself here, one of the scariest things is you can be proven to be average. Average. So I ask you this morning, and I ask myself, what are we trying to prove in each one of our lives? If you've been with us before, you know that we're, we're walking through this book of Hebrews, the book within the book of the Bible of Hebrews, and it's a sermon written down to a discouraged urban congregation a congregation that's in the danger zone of drift in their faith in Jesus Christ. And it's been given to us, one of the main reasons God has still given it to us here in his word, to be a timeless guide in the midst of our faith journey with Christ, is to be an encouragement for urban congregations thereafter who are in the danger zone of drift. And here our author, he guides us in escaping the courtroom of life. And what he says is, what we don't need is better self-image, improving the way you look. What we don't need is better self-esteem, feeling better about the way you really look. But what we really need above all else is a better advocate. A better advocate in this courtroom of life. An advocate in the legal meaning is someone who appears as a representative of someone on trial in court. And they intercede or they they plead on someone else's behalf. Now, you may be asking yourself, okay, Gabe, how does advocacy line up with our passage that was just read? I heard a lot about Melchizedek. I heard a lot about priests. What's going on with advocates? And uh, well, in the ancient Near East, religious institutions and political institutions weren't separated. They were many times intertwined. And our author here, the author of Hebrews, would have seen them as interlocked as well. So, for example, the ancient law of ancient Israel was also the capital L law of God. And if you disobeyed the law, if it was broken, the priest would intercede both to God and to government for you. They would intercede and help meet out the ramifications of your unlawful actions. The priests were the people's advocate. 
Well, today in a more secular society, church and state is separated with good caution. So whether you're a Christian or not, whether you follow Jesus or not, we all tend to create our own standards. We all tend to, no matter what your code or your law you've established in your own life, these codes, these laws can be just as damning. And you find yourself right back in the courtroom trying to prove that you're smart enough, trying to finally prove to someone that you're good enough, finally trying to prove to someone that you're beautiful enough to be worth it. But herein lies, I think, one of the greatest gifts of the Christian faith. Christianity means that you no longer need to make your case. You you, you know you're broken, but you're no longer trying to fight and trying to prove any longer. But you still experience the beautiful reality that the case is closed. How, How is that even possible? It all comes down to knowing a better advocate in Jesus. Now, the author of Hebrews, he, um, he wants us to see this. Um, our faith, it revolves around the truth that Jesus is the better advocate. That's our big idea. We're going to hang on to that. We're going to hold on to it. And the majority of our time this morning, we're going to unpack why this is the case, okay? Jesus is the better advocate. And here are the three reasons that we're going to walk through. One, he has a better precedent. Secondly, he makes a better argument. And then thirdly, he offers indestructible life. He has a better precedent, he makes a better argument, and he offers indestructible life. So if you haven't already, would you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7? If you don't have a Bible, um, as Sherry said, we have a couple on the flip side of the dividers there that you can have and own. Um, Hebrews chapter 7, and it is also, as she said, in page 650 of the Community Bibles. So what we first find out about why Jesus is a better advocate, we see that it's because he has a better precedent. For those of you who are in law school and here, um, in the court of law, so much is about precedent. Are you familiar with the term precedent? It's a similar case earlier on that gives guidance to the present case. And the author of Hebrews, he knows this group of beleaguered Christians is wrestling in their faith. They know their Bibles well, because probably most of them were Jewish um, in descent, and they have some questions as they're trying to see their whole Bibles, how they come together with Jesus being the, the cornerstone, the centerpiece of this whole story. They're not sure Jesus really is this better high priest, this better advocate, because according to God's command earlier before Jesus, a priest that was affirmed by God as being legit a legit advocate had to have certain ancestry. They had to come from the family line of Aaron, you know, who was Moses' brother. And so he had to be some great, 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 great grandfather or something like that. You know, hey, I'm connected with Aaron. And, and that may sound really weird to us in 21st century United States of America, where everyone can easily choose their particular vocation of choice. You can move up and down a social, uh, in your social status. But this structure family-oriented vocational calling was very common throughout the predominant history of humanity. So for example, it would have been common for Eddie's son to be a teacher leader because Eddie was a teacher leader. And in history, Eddie's father would have been a teacher leader and he would have shown him the tricks of the trade as it spanned throughout history within their family and the rights would have been the teacher leaders. 
You know, they would have known because we didn't, they didn't have the same sort of educational structure we have today where you could then pick what vocation you wanted to be called to. The home was the crucible of learning. It was the place where you learned the ins and outs, the behind the scenes of that particular vocation. So when God was organizing the nation of Israel to be his people, he ordained that the priests were to be descendants, specifically the high priests, of Aaron, this guy and his family. And they were called Levitical priests. They'd be advocates for the people to God through sacrifices and offerings. So as our early Christian brothers and sisters are reading their Bibles, they're, they're, they're seeing and wondering how to make sense of Jesus. For it is written, as we saw in chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, that Jesus doesn't come from this priestly family line of Aaron, but from the royal family line of Judah. And so our author does what all of us should do when we have questions about the Bible. He sits down and he starts reading. He starts reading and he starts in the beginning. And in chapter 7, verse 1, he comes across a precedent that no one had yet noticed. He reveals it to us. And he begins to unpack this interesting person found at the beginning of the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 14. Now look, if this is your first time here on a Sunday, or even if you've been in church for a long time, when we get to topics of sacrifices, of offerings, of guys like Melchizedek, it can be confusing and weird, okay? So don't feel alone. That's one of the biggest... Uh, lies that you can feel is like you're the only person who doesn't understand this but it's worth for us to learn it's worth for us to understand it's actually at the very crux of the hebrews writer hebrew writer's um, argument okay so so while our author is reading his bible he strikes gold in genesis chapter 14 the time period of genesis 14 is centuries before the levitical priesthood is established and Abraham, known as Abram at this point in the storyline, was the guy out of all the people in the world. Out of everyone else, God chooses Abraham and says, all right, you're going to be the heir of the promise. Your people, you're going to create a nation, or I'm going to create a nation out of you that is going to glorify my good name. And out of you, I'm going to redeem the world. Whoa, that's a big deal, right? Well, in Genesis 14, Abraham's nephew, Lot, He's always getting into trouble. Um, and and he, he was taken hostage by some neighboring invading kings, some chieftains. And so Abram gets his special ops guys, and they go and do this reconnaissance. And they rescue Lot and his family, and they defeat these warring kings. And Abraham is on a personal mountaintop. I mean, he's the guy who has the promises, right? Like, this is the, he's the guy that God's going to work through. And he just won this major battle has all these great resources at his disposal as the booty of his battle, right? And then he meets Melchizedek out of nowhere. Um, without any background information, we don't have anything in Genesis 14 about where he came from, when he was born, when he died. And he shows up for like three or four verses out of the whole storyline of Scripture. And it, it's very ambiguous. What on earth is going on with Melchizedek out of nowhere? Melchizedek, he's described as the priest of the Most High God, and he's also the king of Salem. And so the author here of Hebrews begins to dive into this. Okay, he's the priest of the Most High God, and he's the king of Salem, which means peace. His name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. So in righteousness and peace, he's reigning over the city and also an advocate for the people to God. And the great patriarch, Abraham, he pays him homage 
by giving him a tenth, a tithe. That's where that tithe word comes from. It means a tenth. Of all his spoils from war, there's no manipulation, no fighting. Abraham just feels the urge, this great sense of urgency to give a gift to show honor to God through Melchizedek and this priest king as a sign of his superiority over Abraham, then blesses Abraham and then disappears from the story. That's what we got. (laughs) In reading Genesis 14, you can't help but notice between Melchizedek and Abraham, Melchi over here, he's... He's the one who's superior to Abraham, okay? Melchizedek, he's the greater of the two. He's the one who receives the tithes. And since the superior always blesses the the inferior in ancient Near Eastern culture, because he has the power to, he has the power to follow through on his blessing, he blesses Abraham. So he receives the tithes and does the blessing. Therefore, he is the superior one in the story. And if you were wondering what's going on in this verse about loins, <laughs> like what is going on? Um, it was a commonly held viewpoint that an ancestor contained within himself all of his descendants. Okay? An ancestor contained within himself all of his descendants. And I'm not going to go into all the details as to why that is. Um, we could spend a long time talking about that. But the big idea is that this means all of Abraham's descendants, including Aaron, including all the Levitical priesthood, ultimately are inferior to Melchizedek because they, through Abraham, brought tithes to Melchizedek and were blessed by Melchizedek. You see this? So Melchizedek is actually the top of the deck. Then there's Abraham. Then there's Aaron and the Levitical priesthood. Melchizedek is superior to all of these. Now, I know we're doing some mental work here, and I know this isn't like, oh, this is going to help me write or do my project at work this week. But stay with me. Sometimes doing the heavy lifting, we get stronger muscles, and it helps us do lifting later in other passages, okay? So why is this important? Because it shows us that Jesus has every lawful right to be our advocate in God's economy. We don't have to do crazy work to just throw out old passages in the Old Testament, But Christ actually fulfills them. He doesn't just abolish. He fulfills the old covenant. And he has a better precedent than Aaron, a better precedent than the Levitical priesthood. And even though the author of Hebrews is the first to notice that this is now fulfilled in Jesus by the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit as he's reading God's word, searching for answers, he's not the first one to know it was coming. He's not the first one to know that it's coming. And look, our author, he quotes multiple times throughout this book. The only other time Melchizedek is mentioned in all of Scripture, the only other time is very quickly in Psalm 110, verse 4. David is is, is described as the author of this song, this psalm. And he's the greatest king in, in the history of the nation of Israel. And he's looking forward to a day when all of God's promises will find their fulfillment in one who will not just be their king, but also their priest, which was very antithetical to the nation of Israel at that time. God had established the priesthood and he established the the kingly line that followed in, in the tribe of Judah. But David, by the power of the Holy Spirit, looks forward to a day when both of these are fulfilled in one magnanimous person. One beautiful priest, king who was to come, who follows in the order of Melchizedek, not Aaron. 
in Melchizedek. Look, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I mean, that would have been crazy for David to say, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, looking forward to what he was going to do in Jesus. So whether it's Abraham and Melchizedek 2,000 years before Christ's birth, or whether it's David 1,000 years before Christ's birth, Jesus' priesthood was always being waited for, looked for, as this better advocate for God's people that will never end. It's not an accident, but it's promised and planned before the dawn of time. Jesus' advocacy is based on him having a better precedent than the Levitical priesthood. It's not based on ancestry, but as verse 16 says, by the power of an indestructible life. Jesus, he resonates with our weaknesses when he became human. He died on the cross to pay for our disobedience against a holy God. And in his resurrection, he stands at the right hand of the Father as our advocate. He has every right to be our advocate in the storyline of Scripture and our whole Bibles pointing to this one, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. But even here, this doesn't bring us a ton of comfort. This is important. This is kind of like the two-by-fours in building your house, but it's not very aesthetic yet, right? You need to understand that he has a better precedent, that this is appropriate, that this was planned. But what brings peace is after we get that he has made a better president, or he has a better president, that as he stands as our rightful advocate, he makes a better argument. This is where we start to rest. This is the moment where we get to celebrate. I mean, at the end of the day, the case comes down to the argument presented, right? And for those who trust in Jesus as their advocate, we see that he always lives to intercede for us. Look at verses 23 and 25. Through 25. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. If you're to ask any attorney, they would say it's an absolute disaster to go into court without an advocate. Um, People who go alone are nuts. I was actually talking with a gentleman uh, who finds himself homeless at this current stage just a couple weeks ago here in the foyer, and we were drinking coffee, talking. And he was telling me about his story, how he was waiting in jail, and he was frustrated on the timeline on waiting for an attorney to be appointed to him. So he insisted that he go into court alone. He figured he had his case all figured out. And he said, I figured I could take care of it, confident in my case, And then I found myself agreeing to things I didn't understand, accepting charges for things I didn't do, all because I wouldn't get an attorney. And I didn't know the rules. And so he sat in the reality that going alone was disastrous for him. It's just the same then as it is today. If you you got in trouble with the law, you, you, you you didn't want to sit before the judge alone because you very seldom knew the rules. You didn't know the laws. You didn't know... Um, on how to defend yourself appropriately. But if you get an advocate, if you get an attorney, a good attorney, what do you look like in court? It transforms the way you look, right? You actually begin to look like your advocate. If your advocate is a brilliant communicator, then you become a brilliant communicator arguing your case. If your advocate wins, you win. 
If your advocate loses, you lose. You're kind of hidden in your advocate. And that is what at the core of Christianity. There are a lot of people who think that they come to church, they know the right words, they're kind to their neighbor sometimes. They think that they're Christians, but they have no understanding of the advocacy of Christ on their behalf. Instead, what they're doing is building their own case. They're getting their paperwork together, adding the tallies so that they hopefully can stand before God and say, see, my paperwork's all in order. Rather than trusting that Jesus is the rightful advocate who is, he is the only one who is able to save to the uttermost. The only one. So what does Jesus's advocacy look like? All right. Um, what does it mean when it says he always lives to make intercession? What does that, what does that mean? Well, what it doesn't look like, I heard this, this, I thought this was a great example. What it doesn't look like is that Jesus comes into God the Father with, his, with your file in hand at the end of the week and begins to walk through, you know, uh, oh yeah, he messed up here. Um, and uh, <laughs> he messed up here again. Um, but, 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 Heavenly Father, just give him mercy. And so then God the Father begrudgingly says, fine, fine, I just don't want to see his file in here anymore, okay? You know, fine, I'll give him mercy this one last time, but make sure you take care of this scoundrel. Um, it's not like Jesus is the Lincoln lawyer, you know, who's spinning to get mercy, driving around, just waiting for somebody to throw the right amount of cash in, you know, the, the window. I mean, how long, if that were really the case, how long could Jesus keep that up? That would be nerve-wracking, wouldn't it? I mean, you could almost see God the Father saying to me, look, he's a pastor now. Um, it's a little too late for mercy, don't you think? Let's move on. That's not what Jesus does as our advocate. That's not what he does. Any real good attorney isn't a spin doctor who plays on the emotions of the court. He's got a case, Right? He's got a case. And Jesus, he doesn't request mercy, but in his case, he's telling God the Father the law and he demands justice. I mean, the Apostle John, he writes this brilliantly in his first letter to the church where he says in 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and merciful. No, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Only in Christianity can we take honestly and adamantly and truthfully the deep realities of our own brokenness, that we are sinful to the core, destructive people, and simultaneously admit that we stand completely forgiven by the just work of of God. Only in Christianity is that possible. And it's all possible through the cross of Christ. Jesus is this better advocate because he makes a better argument by his life, his death, and his resurrection. The case is simple. I mean, Jesus, he took our punishment upon himself on the cross and died in our place. And in return, he gave us the innocent verdict, making us forever flawless and beautiful before God. The only just thing for God the Father to do because of our advocate is to now accept those who hide themselves in this advocate. It's in this 
beautiful gospel that's centered in the person and the atoning work of Jesus Christ. We see that God has proved, as Romans 3.26 says, to be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, in one sense, you can't not care about this, right? None of us can avoid turning our life into one big trial daily, sometimes hourly. But when we rest in Jesus' better argument, we find that we have nothing left to prove. No case to build. And instead of each conversation, each day, fighting for your life, we find he offers indestructible life. To know that the creator God of the universe declares you beautiful because of nothing that you've done, nothing that you've done, but because of everything that God has done in Christ for you, it'll change the way we live. And I want to just point out three ways in particular, this indestructible life of Christ that he has within him, how he shares it with us and how this kind of shows up in our life, okay? So first, we see that indestructible life, it makes us secure, secure people. Someone who's secure knows who they are and who they aren't. Um, They aren't hijacking each conversation to be seen as the smartest person. They don't have to always have read all the right books and make people feel guilty just to make themselves feel better because they haven't read all the right books. They don't need to always be right. They don't need to defend themselves. They can share credit and even give away glory because they know the case is closed. The case is closed. They've been pronounced beautiful in Christ, and so no other verdict can change who they are. I love what C.S. Lewis, the way he defines humility, is exactly what Scripture highlights. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's not self-pity, where you're always talking about how terrible you are and how terrible your situation is. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Thinking more of others. So in a conversation, when someone begins to share about their hurts and their pains, a secure person talks about that person's share, those hurts and pains. It doesn't then change around and then become a point where you can talk about all your hurts and pains and you become the center of the conversation again. Self-pity, pointing once again to me, me, me. No. True humility, true secure people are able to highlight the other. Let them be the center of the conversation. So first, it makes us secure. Secondly, it'll make you steady. It'll make you steady. Um, When hard times come, when deep disappointments come, they don't shatter your world. Why? Because although pain and suffering comes, it no longer defines you. It no longer defines you. Because your hope isn't found in your accomplishments to begin with. So when you fail, you're not crushed. Your advocate is Jesus His work is where you find your identity. So in the midst of deep and painful realities, you're able to still be steady. It doesn't mean that we don't lament. It doesn't mean that we aren't hurt, but it doesn't shake you to your core to the point that you can no longer function. It makes you somewhat of a steady person, someone who can carry the weight of hurt and help others and carry and share their burdens. Thirdly and lastly, This indestructible life that comes from knowing our advocate and and flows out of our advocate makes us fearless 
And I think this is so key. We learn this from kids. Um, you know, that's what I appreciate about Shane's work, constantly learning from children. I think one thing that's so beautiful about children is they don't have the same sort of fear of failure many times. They're willing to take these risks. And sometimes they're dangerous, and sometimes we've got to say, don't do that. Um, otherwise, you're going to die. Um, but this fear of failure that can just crush our lives to the point that we never take risks from, with anyone. There, we have these great fear of humiliation, so we never serve others. A great fear of rejection, so we never let anyone know us. A, a great fear of death and denial, so we never draw near to God. If we know who our advocate is, if we know the case is closed, that Jesus lives always to intercede for us. It makes us a fearless people to step out of the courtroom free forever because there's nothing left for you to prove. And someone who did this so well is found in the book of Acts. He's the first martyr of the church, Stephen. He exhibits all three of these beautifully in grace and when Stephen was literally condemned to death by a jury of his peers because of his faith in Jesus. And before he was stoned, he sees God the Son, Jesus Christ, at the right hand of the Father, standing, ready to embrace Stephen, ready to accept him. He finds great comfort. And God the Father is ready to receive the innocent condemned. I mean, one pastor once said it so well. At the moment the earthly co- court was condemning him, the only court that mattered was commending him. Jesus is the better advocate than all this world has to offer. And look at how he describes this advocate in Hebrews 7, verses 26 and 27. This, this is who has standing incessantly and in, in, interceding for us, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, meaning he he was not engaged in any sort of sin or brokenness, but he, he wore our weakness perfectly and exalted above the heavens. He has no need. He has no need. And yet he gives us so much. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people since He did this once for all when he was offered up. When he offered himself up. In Jesus, you have nothing left to lose. You have nothing left to prove and everything to gain. I mean, let him take your hopeless case and make it beautiful. He has a better precedent. He makes a better argument and he offers indestructible life. Jesus is the better advocate. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you uh, this morning through our advocate, Jesus, that the case is closed. And we can stand here in celebration, not in fear, but as, as the Hebrews writer said earlier, boldly come before your throne of grace. And we hear about this, you know, this old eccentric guy named Melchizedek, but it's so critical to see that you've been planning and purposing that Jesus Christ would be both king and priest of his people, of us, for all who would bow the knee to Christ as Lord and Savior, as king and deliverer of hopeless cases. Thank you for your grace. 
Thank you that we don't have to prove ourselves any longer. But we can rest in your final verdict of innocent, of beautiful in Jesus. We pray all this in our advocate's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.